Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. In a wide-ranging conversation, Martin Barron, the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post, talks to Esri CMO Mariana Cantor. They discuss leadership in an era of change, the role of technology, the power of purpose, and the importance of facts. Martin Barron was executive editor of the Boston Globe and the Miami Herald. But when he started as executive editor at the Washington Post, Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, decided to buy the legendary newspaper and accelerate its digital transformation. A first-time author, Barron has had a ringside seat to critical developments in business, government, and society, including when he and his leadership team decided that the Washington Post would be a leading worldwide voice on climate science journalism, for which they won a Pulitzer Prize. The reality is that when it comes to certain subjects, and climate is one of them, there's an enormous amount of interest, particularly among younger people in our society today, and they want to know a lot more because we can see it in various parts of the world today. Hello, Marty, and welcome to the Esri and the Science Aware podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You have a storied professional life. You led newsrooms that collectively won 18 Pulitzer Prizes. 11 of those were at the Washington Post, one for the coverage of climate change, and the list goes on. When you ran the Boston Globe, the paper won six Pulitzers. The Globe also won the Public Service Prize for its investigation into the Catholic Church cover-up of the clergy child abuse. That work was the subject of the film Spotlight, which won the Oscar for Best Picture. Also, the San Francisco Chronicle resurrected its defunct investigative team after seeing the film, which is incredible. But first things first, Marty, Lev Schreiber betrayed you in the movie. What did you think of his depiction of you? I was very happy, of course. It's not often you get to be portrayed in a film. Uh, And beyond that, I got to be portrayed by somebody who was uh, taller, more fit, and uh, (laughs) better better looking than I am, so that when people... uh, my name. I see the resemblance, by the way. I think people say he looks a lot like me, but uh, nobody has yet said that I look like him. It's strange how <laughs> that works. But I was very happy with uh, his portrayal. I was very happy with the movie. I thought it did a great job of portraying why we why we need investigative reporting, how hard it is to do investigative reporting, and how it can be done right. I think it uh, did remind a lot of owners, publishers, and editors of why they need to have investigative and get investigative staff. And it was a big reminder, I think, also to staffers, to journalists, that we really need to listen to people who don't have power, whose voices have not been heard, because they often have some very powerful things to say. And this is a theme throughout your career, as I learned more. You've consistently and repeatedly tackled some of the most controversial and complex issues with uncertain outcomes when you made those decisions. I would characterize this as leadership. We could characterize this leadership as courageous, visionary, steadfast. But from your perspective, what are the qualities you possess and cultivate that enable you to have such formidable impact? I hope that I possess uh, the qualities that I think that everyone in the field of journalism should have. And that's what I, I say we should have a soul and a spine. So what I mean by soul is that we really understand what our mission is and that we are deeply committed to that mission. And we focus entirely on that and not on, let's say, ourselves or other things, and that we're just uh, single-mindedly centered on what our mission is and have a clear understanding of it. And by a spine, I mean that we are willing to stand up for that mission, notwithstanding all the pressures that can be brought to bear on us. 
of course, those pressures can come from a lot of different corners. They can come from politicians. They can come from business executives. They can come from the general public and, and all of that. Uh, but if we have a clear sense of what our mission is and we've done our work right, then we should be willing to stand behind that. And we have to have spine to, to take criticism if it comes. We're always willing to listen. We should be always willing to listen to people's critiques. But if it turns out that we've done our work correctly, we need to have the fortitude to stand behind it. And it is difficult for leaders to balance and even be aware of one's mission in the time of pressure and crisis. If you look back and think back at those moments in your own career, what comes to mind? My view of uh, journalism is that its purpose is to give uh, the public the information it needs and deserves to know in order to govern themselves. And I think our mission was delineated way back, actually, at the time of the founding of the country, really at the time that the Constitution was written. James Madison was the principal author of the First Amendment, and he talked about freely examining public characters and measures. That means that we're not just stenography. We're looking behind the curtain. We're looking beneath the surface. We want to find out who was responsible for particular actions, who is going to be affected by those, who influenced those, those events. Uh, all of that going much deeper than stenography. It's a, that's an entirely different field. Uh, public characters means politicians, government officials, people in positions of power, uh, institutions that have power. And then the measures that Madison talked about, those are the policies. And so in a way, that was our original assignment as a, and for the press here in this country. It's the very reason that we have a press in this country. And so I always keep that, I try to keep that in mind. That is uh, what we're obligated to do. That's the very foundation for our profession. Uh, and we should always be focused on that. These accomplishments, and there are many, are particularly notable because you needed to bring whole organizations and reputedly independent thinkers, the journalists, along on the journey. Can you talk about that a little bit? How did you do that? What worked? What didn't work? We've gone through a tremendous amount of disruption in our field because of the digital. We've obviously entered the digital era, and particularly with the proliferation of high-speed broadband in the early 2000s, that, that was hugely disruptive to us. Of course, that made possible all of mobile devices, video, audio, all of that online that didn't exist before. Of course, we were dealing with the internet prior to that, but the, the huge impact really came with the high-speed broadband. I took some adjustment on my own part, I have to say, and ultimately when I tried to move our staff in the direction of being more digital, I tried to explain my own journey, how I'd actually gone through, I had gone through my period of mourning of for, I was so attached to what we had been, the print orientation that we had. We used to talk in our business about how journalists had ink under their fingernails, things like that. I told the staff, look, the reality is that even when you're mourning the loss of a, a family member or a friend, you need to move on. You need to make the best of your life. You need to make your life fulfilling. And that's what we in this profession really need to do. And so I talked in those broad terms about that. I also talked about how we were going to miss out. We were going to lose. We were going to, if we didn't, if we didn't adapt. Here we had, for example, at the Washington Post, we had staff with deep experience and deep expertise. And yet there were other people who were covering their beats who were receiving more attention, who were regarded more as authorities, even though they didn't have the same level of expertise and same level of experience. And I said, and the reason is because they have not only adapted to the digital era, they've embraced the digital era. And so if we don't do that, you're going to lose out. And that would be a real shame if someone with greater experience and expertise uh, loses out to someone with less experience and expertise. 
If you want to be seen as the authority, you need to make these changes. Then we introduced, of course, a variety of metrics uh, to see how people were doing. And we reviewed with people how their uh, department heads, with how their staffs were doing, and then occasionally with individuals about how their own individuals were doing in terms of meeting their metrics. And the metrics were flexible. They weren't rigid and they weren't doctrinaire. Uh, we recognize that, let's say, somebody covering national politics is going to produce more traffic online than somebody who's covering a local school board. And so we were very flexible. Really, we looked at people who were top performers and wanted to make sure they were being rewarded. And we looked at bottom performers to make sure that they were being reminded that they needed to, to do more work. And, and so that's how I approached it. And some of these were just very informal conversations. I recall very well one of the members of our political staff at one point, much to my surprise, said, can you explain this digital stuff to me? And I said, sure. We went to a coffee shop and I said, and she asked me to talk about it. And I said, why don't you look around the coffee shop? Do you see anybody looking at a print newspaper? And she said, no. I said, why don't you look at out the street here through the window? Everybody in the coffee shop was looking at their cell phone. And I said, okay, that's noted. And now look out the window. Of course, half the people walking on the sidewalk weren't looking in front of them. They were looking at their cell phone. And I said, okay, so I'm finished with my explanation. Is there anything more? Is there anything for me to explain? I think I've made my case. Case closed. You mentioned metrics. And when you joined Washington Post, soon afterwards, Jeff Bezos acquired the newspaper. And then he was the CEO of Amazon, of course. And I want to talk about how the business model changed then and what he introduced culturally and all that. But one of the things I read in your book where you had to push back on him, he introduced a whole bunch of performance metrics, which worked in the tech industry, which I'm part of, and obviously Amazon very well. But you refused to adopt some, like measuring how long it takes to for writers to produce. Clear that there was a good reason for that, which I'd love for you to share. But additionally, what criteria would you recommend to evaluate when performance can be quantified and when it can't be? Yeah, that's a really good question. We had a couple of metrics that I found really inappropriate for our business, and I did refuse to implement them. So one was for a newly created overnight team where he wanted people to, they were going to work from about uh, 10 o'clock at night till uh, six or seven o'clock in the morning. Those are not the best hours, of course. And they would be doing a fair amount of aggregating, but also some original reporting. And he wanted us to measure them to turn around stories in every 15 minutes. And I, I thought that was just insane. And that we wouldn't be producing stories of any quality, nor would we be able to hire anybody of any quality to work those hours. It's hard enough to hire somebody to work those hours, but to tell them that the, the greatest satisfaction will be finishing a story within 15 minutes and that they would be measured constantly with that, I thought that, that was crazy. Another one was a direct indirect, but he, was, he wanted to put resources into positions that had a direct impact on the consumer, being the reader, that means the reader for us, and and limit the amount of resources for indirects, which was fine, theoretically. But the way that he and his team thought about indirect, it meant editors. Editors actually have a direct impact, a very important impact on the work we do, uh, both in terms of generating stories, guiding those stories, and ensuring that those stories meet our quality standards. His notion was that we really needed editors for the really complicated stories, that, but that we probably didn't for the more simple stories. And that's just not true. So I thought there was just a real misconception about our business. He was new to our business and to our profession. And I felt uh, obliged 
uh, to uh, be glad of responsibility to the quality of our work and, and also to our staff, uh, but ultimately to the public to make sure that we did our work appropriately. And so I, I did push back on that. I think metrics is really hard in a field like ours in terms of quality. And, and I, I do think some are, are certainly appropriate. And as I mentioned before, we did use metrics to see if people were, were contributing to our traffic or not contributing to our traffic, make sure we rewarded those who were and had real converse, tough conversations with people who weren't. Uh, but I think you have to be really careful about very rigid metrics uh, when um, a lot of what happens in the field of journalism is highly, it, 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 can defy, it can defy measurement, particularly quality, which is there are a lot of subtle aspects of uh, what makes a good story versus what makes a poor story. And numbers don't, don't necessarily address that. We can certainly see whether people are reading our stories, and I was totally open to that. Are people reading our stories? Are they engaged with these stories? How much time do they spend with particular stories? Things like that. And we did use that to inform where we would allocate resources if people were much more interested in investigations or narratives or deep profiles, things of that sort, uh, we were able to obtain additional resources for that. Marty, is there an objective way to say what's a good story? I'm not sure that can be synthesized down to one explanation. One for podcast. What makes a good, first of all, one podcast or one sentence or even a paragraph. Obviously, a good story is one, first of all, that it's accurate, it's fair, it's honest, it's honorable, honorably reported, but it's, it has to be engagingly told. Clearly, it's one thing to have the information, but it's not enough. It's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Uh, you also have to be able to tell that story in a way that somebody will be interested in it. First of all, that they will understand the story, particularly when it comes to complicated subjects, but that they will be deeply engaged in that story as well, and that it will pique their curiosity and maintain their interest. I want to come back to Jeff Bezos for just one moment and the importance of branding. You, I think, had your team work on a, I guess, a slogan for Washington Post for a year or so to communicate the mission, the essence of the paper. And they came back with a number of options. And at the end, Jeff Bezos came back with the one that eventually was adopted, Democracy Dies in Darkness. What I'm interested in being actually head of marketing at Esri uh, is, did the staff actually embrace this? Did it mean anything to them or was it something more used externally with your readers? It was a really difficult process. It was a two year long uh, process. He felt we should have, I think what all of us would call a slogan or a motto, but he called a mission statement. He encouraged us not to necessarily avoid the word democracy. He also said he wanted it to be a phrase that would just fit on a t-shirt. But I think the most important thing that he said was that it should not convey this is a newspaper that people want to subscribe to, but an idea that they wish to belong to. And I think that was a really important point. And I think that's the most salient point. And that is that newspapers, we have a, we're not just like any other product. We have a relationship with our customers and it is a complex one. Some days they love us, some days they don't, some days they hate us or what have you, but they have a relationship with us in the same way that somebody might have a relationship with a friend or a family member. And we needed to give them the feeling that they were part of a, a mission in a way, our mission. And, and we needed to articulate what that mission was that in fact would enlist their uh, participation and get them to subscribe in the most practical terms. We had a lot of ideas. There were over a thousand. They were routinely all rejected. Many of them were really terrible. One went back. We finally settled on one and it went back to, he went back, flew back to Seattle, saw his then wife, Mackenzie. 
she's an author of two of some novels and she pronounced it Frankenslogan. And so that was the death <laughs> of that one. And finally, Bezos uttered a phrase, a democracy dies in darkness that had been used by Bob Woodward for many years as an adaptation of something a judge had said some years earlier, that democracy dies, dies behind closed doors. And uh, I think the staff uh, really embraced it. I think they were surprised by it in the same way that everybody was surprised by that. Uh, some of us were a little hesitant. I was hesitant because most marketing programs would not recommend using death and darkness in their slogan. But here we were. Doom and despair. Uh, doom and despair. <laughs> that maybe somebody else can get that. Pick up that one. It's not, it's probably not in the marketing playbook. So in any event, I was a little nervous about it. All I could think of was the serenity prayer, <laughs> the opportunity to accept what I cannot change. But it worked brilliantly. And I think the staff really embraced it because it did articulate our central purpose and something that the Post had done for decades, uh, which was to shine a light in dark corners and uh, to hold government accountable. And and it got people's attention. And there were a lot of people who mocked it, but Bezos was thrilled that it was being mocked because he says said that meant it got attention. And most of these things don't get any attention. Mm -hmm. Everybody just yawns and moves on. And But it, it grabbed people's attention and you can go around the world now and ask people about the motto of the Washington Post, and they will tell you democracy dies in darkness. They have, they remember it. That's right. It is memorable. Let's talk about the importance of narrative. It's definitely important in your business, but it's also important in our business and business in general in life. But some say that true story is an oxymoron, that we're in this post-truth society. What's the best way to tell a true convincing story in this increasingly skeptical world flooded with misinformation. I'm among those who reject the idea that there is no uh, objective reality, that there is no such thing as truth. I realize it's hard to get at. Even the Post's uh, first principle, uh, which is on their wall as you walk into the newsroom, is to tell the truth as nearly as it uh, may be ascertained, which recognizes that it's difficult, that it's a process, that it's an, that we have to continue working at that, but it also recognizes that there is such a thing as truth. And so for us, that is a challenge. In our society today, it's not it, uh, one, of the, one of the biggest problems we have, and certainly a problem for the press, but really a problem for society overall, is that we don't share a common set of facts. It's worse than that, actually. Uh, we can't even agree on how to, how to establish that something is a fact. And so I think for the press, what we need to do is one thing we need to do is be more transparent about how we go our we do our work. We need to not just tell, but we need to show. Uh, and that means showing all of the evidence for our story. In many ways, we should assume that uh, the public won't believe a word we say. And so we show them. If we mention a court case, we need to point people through a link or what have you to a court document. We need to annotate that court document and take them to the very specific portion of the document, whether it be a deposition, a judge's ruling, a piece of evidence, what have you, and show them exactly where we got that. If we're pointing to government data, we need to take them to that data set. We need to just, and they can look at it for themselves. If we're referring to something that was caught on video or an audio, we need to provide that video and we need to provide that audio and we need to provide the whole thing so that people can listen to it and see that we did not take it out of context. I think we just need to be much more transparent about our work and lay out the evidence, as I said, in the way that a trial lawyer would lay out the evidence for a jury. What you're describing is actually more information. It makes sense. More evidence, a more complete context. But the currency of, of attention today is increasingly drama and spectacle and 
every headline, even in the most reputable publications, resort to sensational headlines that often obscure, if not mislead. So, how do you what do you how do you think about this? It's true that people's attention span is shockingly limited. And if you're dealing with complicated subjects, how can you absorb a complicated subject, particularly one with a lot of subtlety and nuance, when people aren't willing to spend the time? At the very least, I think we need to adapt to the way that people are processing information. And there's just no question that people are processing information more visually than they are through text these days. So many of our stories, I think, need to be told through uh, visuals, and we need to make them engaging. Uh, We shouldn't sacrifice complexity, uh, but somehow we need to translate that into a visual medium. And uh, and many of the stories, and I believe the stories of the future, will be some sort of hybrid uh, where they will include text, visuals, audio, uh, original documents, uh, all in one sort of storytelling form that works on a mobile device. And I think that's where you could see some of that in, in certain stories already online. Uh, but I think that's really where we're moving. But visual is critical. Interactive graphics, videos, what, where we incorporate the complexities. And if people want to go deeper, then they can go deeper. And we offer them that opportunity. Speaking of the future, I wonder what you think about the fact that AI is impacting every industry, every sector, every area in our lives. It's going to rock our world at the scale of the internet, if not larger. What are your thoughts on this topic in your industry or beyond? Certainly in our industry, we have to be very careful with how we use it. I don't think we can go out and ask it to do reporting because we re- it, it results in what are typically called hallucinations. And mm-hmm. I don't know why we had to use the word hallucinations. We should just call them fabrications, which is what they are. Just flat out falsehoods. But I think we can use them in our field to make our, our jobs much more efficient. They are great. They can be a tremendous time management tool for journalists who are have who are bearing an enormous number of burdens today in terms of constantly updating their stories, in terms of writing headlines that are friendly for search or friendly for social media. Um, with selecting photos that are going to go with their stories. So if you work within the universe of verified information that's already within your own database, then you're limiting the risks. In fact, sharply limiting the risks and may even be eliminating the risks. And if you're in the field and you're reporting and you already have a story and you add a piece of information to that and you indicate where you want that to be in the story and AI produces that story and you review it quickly uh, and then you post it and it it generates a search-friendly headline or in a social-friendly headline right away because it understands search and social better than any human being can, that is an incredible time saver for an individual. And I think we it can be highly effective that way. So you're generally positive on how it's going to affect journalism, it sounds like. I think Look, I think it's as with any other technology, I think it's important that we not resist it and just grumble about it. Uh, I think it's it's important that we make it our own, take advantage of it in a way that is constructive and not destructive. So in a way, I think it's really important that we take control of that technology rather than have that technology take control of us. Will AI have the capacity to break out of conventions, to think creatively. I'm not sure about that. Uh, it's really, it's already drawing on the existing patterns out there and the existing data out there. But what about the stuff that you don't see? What about the right. things you can't envision? That is the nature of creativity as somebody who's able to jump ahead. Would AI have told Jeff Bezos to create an internet bookstore and then that should be the everything store? I, I doubt it. This is very nascent, what is going to happen. 
I'd like to see what happens with this thing. But I think the possibilities are endless and we can't even predict yeah. where it's going to go. Marty, I want to end where we began with your formidable leadership. When you were at the Washington Post, you decided that the paper was going to be a media world leader in reporting deeply on climate change. When you made that big bet, how did you validate the gamble? Was it the right bet, retrospectively? Yeah, I think it's the right bet. I think this came about. It wasn't uh, from me. We had formed a climate team before this, my, my managing editor, number two in the newsroom. We had people covering climate from a lot of different angles, and they were in different departments. And then he said, I, he thought that we should pull them all together. And we did. And then we hired a new edit, an editor for that. And then and the reporters on that, one of the reporters, Chris Mooney, was the one who came up with the idea for that project. Because in doing his work, I was, was toward the end of 2018, he saw that, that there were places that were warming a lot faster than other places on the planet, and some that had already warmed beyond two degrees centigrade. And we didn't have to view climate change and global warming as something for a distant future. It was here already, and we could see the consequences of that. And that's what he, and with the, under the direction of his the new editor, Trish Wilson, had said, let's, let's form a project. Let's create a project and let's take a look at that and let's go around the world and take a look at it. Uh, do I think that's validated? Absolutely. Not only was it journalistically ambitious, and I think we should, we should embark on journalistic, on ambitious journalistic projects, but it was a subject of enormous consequence for our world. And on top of that, there's a lot of interest. There was a lot of interest in this story. I think there's a, a misconception that all stories have to be short or catchy or things like that. The reality is that when it comes to certain subjects, and climate is one of them, there's an enormous amount of interest, particularly among younger people in our society today, and they want to know a lot more. And and what we were signaling to them is that we are willing, we as an institution are willing to invest the resources, full resources to really understand what climate change means for our world, because we can see it in various parts of the world today. And I think that we talk about doing stories that are engaging and that are engagingly written. And I think that's what we did in that instance, and all credit due to the climate staff for that project. In fact, Post won both the Poulter and an award for outstanding explanatory reporting by the Society of Environmental Journalists for this, for this work called the Two Degrees Beyond the Limit. And I want to read what the, the committee said. This is why journalism was invented. The Washington Post confronted with the most important threat to humanity sent excellent reporters around the world to document it and explain it for readers and for posterity in a vivid and unforgettable way. And lastly, the Washington Post series fundamentally reshaped the climate debate by showing that extreme warming is not a worry for the future. It is here now. And I guess relating to that, I'll ask, how, was, how were the leaders and yourself mobilizing the staff around an issue that was not fully understood and quite abstract, at least at the time? First of all, we had people on staff who had spent a lot of time on climate, mm -hmm. who specialized in the coverage of climate. They were pulled together in, in this as a team. Uh, their team leader, the department head, um, pulled them together to have conversations about this. We also uh, did a lot of data work. Somebody on our data team, John Meiskens, was he went back and looked at uh, the available climate data going back to the 1800s, and a lot of it was available. And and 
He's a computer scientist by training and also had the capacity to turn those into really engaging visual graphics and interactive graphics. And we had a, a data foundation for this work. And the important part was to build on that data foundation and go out into the real world and talk to real people and show how these climate changes affected their lives and how it was changing the very environment in which they worked. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for your interest. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. And thanks to Martin Barron, author of the new book, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post, for explaining critical issues and trends in our society, including the pursuit of truth and the importance of facts and science. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.